I had to double check. Lithium in the six months that we've been tracking it has never actually been at $23.60 per kilogram. It kind of fell precipitously when we first started tracking it, let's see, six months ago, when it was at $51 and it fell quite hard down to $24.93. This is just a weekly price that we track here. Fairly informal, shall we say. But now we're at $23.60. So at least according to our, you know, back of the envelope tracking here, lithium is actually at a low we haven't seen in six months. It has returned. You know, this metal that everybody is clamoring the world for continues to fall. As well, I mean, there's a few interesting numbers that I want to share with you here today. And hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And check out uranium. There are some standouts. It's $65.50 per pound. So that is $3.50 higher than last week. A preview of metal prices here. But what's so interesting about uranium It's been climbing for about maybe two and a half, three months steady. And sometimes it's like 25 cents, 10 cents. But now it seems to be accelerating. Last week, it rose $1.25. This week, it rose $3.50. So pretty interesting numbers, aren't they? Now, other numbers we're paying attention to, shall we start with the most dramatic as well here, In bonds, the U.S. 10-year bond is at 4.5%, 4.495. I think we can round that up to 4.5% on the U.S. 10-year bond, whereas the U.K. 10-year is now at 4.28. So interestingly, the U.K. and the U.S. 10-year bond have switched places in terms of yield. Who would have predicted this? And I suppose this has something to do with Inflation expectations, perhaps, and also a stronger-than-expected economy, perhaps. The bottom has still not fallen out, but when you see people like David Rosenberg, who we've had at the Global Mining Symposium, when you listen to people like David Rosenberg, it is a near certainty we are heading, actually, I'd say in his case, a certainty, we are heading into recession, and I believe he'd said he'd eat his hat if not. So, Pretty interesting over there. I mean, we've also been following oil pretty closely. We are back below $90 on WTI. So it's possible we actually did come into an intermediate top, at least, possibly. I believe it was last week when we hit $95 on Brent crude, and I believe it was $93 on WTI. So all very interesting as Russia continues to turn the screws on the West and Europe in terms of diesel. Now, I mentioned the Global Mining Symposium. We are running into the final weeks here. It's actually hard for me to believe. I have the hotel. I have the plane ticket. It is happening on October 12th and 13th. So basically, in two weeks and two days, we are going to be in London for the Canadian Mining Symposium. And it's going to be uh, just an all-star lineup. There is actually an article on the Northern Miner website, actually going into depth on it by Anthony Vaccaro. Save the date, one of the mining and metal world's biggest events is on the horizon. Northern Miners Canadian Mining Symposium is back, taking center stage in London on October 12th and 13th. And here's a sneak peek at the speakers, Robert Friedland, Frank Justra, Anna Cabral, David Garofalo, Don Lindsay, Catherine McLeod Seltzer, John McCluskey, John McConnell, Sean Rusin, Randy Smallwood, to name just a few, 
will be offering their thoughts on shaping tomorrow, powering the transition, gold's might, and very important topic, cultivating talent, which is becoming an increasingly big issue in this industry. So a two-day intellectual voyage, and it should be a wonderful place to meet some of the luminaries and leaders of this entire industry, uh, networking gold. Again, just go to events.northernminer.com if you want to learn more about the Canadian Mining Symposium. There is also an article on the homepage of the Northern Miner. Other than that, I mean, it feels pretty calm, doesn't it? I mean, we have had uh, some breaking of technical support. According to technician Gareth Soloway on the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, you know, the Magnificent Seven. And so perhaps that is part of the reason we are seeing, you know, lower prices in commodities. Yet nevertheless, inflation expectations perhaps are rising based on higher energy prices as well as the prints that we saw on inflation in the last couple of weeks. So that is all happening. Coming up this episode, we have a very special episode with Paul from the Sirius Report. He comes in quarterly and he gives his very often controversial take on what is happening. We focus on gold and oil and controversial because you know a lot of people don't think there is a attempt to suppress the gold price. Paul thinks it's obvious. Some people may disagree with these things. So in the spirit of a free press and in sharing ideas, as long as they are done with a knowledge and a competency, which clearly Paul has, I ask him all sorts of difficult questions on the Shanghai Gold Exchange and on the silver market and on what is happening with the, you know, this tightening of diesel exports coming out of Russia. So pretty specialized questions, which Paul elaborates on extensively. So a very interesting episode ahead for you. It is an extended interview, so a treat for those that love geopolitics and natural resources and where they intersect, which really is one of Paul's specialties, which is why we like to have him on this show. So a fascinating episode ahead for you. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, China exported no germanium gallium in August after export curbs. This is Reuters via mining.com. China's exports of germanium and gallium products in August plunged, customs data showed on Wednesday, after Beijing implemented new export controls on the two chip-making metals. China exported no-rot germanium products last month, compared to 8.63 metric tons in July, when volumes more than doubled from June as overseas buyers rushed to lock in supply ahead of the curbs. There were also no exports of wrought gallium products in August. In July, exports were 5.15 tons and 7.67 tons in the same month in 2022, the data showed. In July, China announced restrictions on the export of 8 gallium and 6 germanium products starting August 1st, the latest salvo in an escalating war between Beijing and Washington over access to materials used in making high-tech microchips. Finally, under the new rules, exporters of germanium and gallium products now need to obtain an export license for dual-use items and technologies, 
meaning those with potential military and civilian applications. And we have a quote from a trader, quote, we did not ship any volumes abroad last month as we are still waiting for a permit. So China strikes back in this chip war. Continuing on, U.S. says it can't cut China out of critical minerals supply chain. Bloomberg News via mining.com, the U.S. won't be able to cut China out of the critical mineral supply chain even as Washington seeks to diversify its sources of the ingredients that go into everything from electric vehicle batteries to solar panels, a top Biden official said on Friday. Quote, this is not about China, end quote, Jose Fernandez, the U.S. Undersecretary for Economic Growth and the Environment, told a briefing in New York. We are perfectly happy to work with them on this, and right now we purchase many of the minerals from Chinese companies. It's about diversifying. Interesting. So an admission on the part of the U.S. on its reliance on Chinese minerals. China's key role in the processing of raw minerals means it will remain a key U.S. partner, Fernandez said, especially because those minerals are crucial components for the batteries that power electric vehicles. The broader use of EVs is a central tenet of the administration's climate change efforts. And we have another quote, the world needs them to be involved. The broader picture is climate change, and we're not going to solve the climate crisis without the involvement of the PRC, referring to the People's Republic of China. China is the second largest economy in the world, a major trading partner of the U.S. We will continue working with them while pursuing our interests and protecting our companies and criticizing them when we feel they should be criticized. I guess the only response I would say is, you may want to continue working with them, but the question remains is if they're going to want to keep working with you. And what we saw with gallium and germanium is they are willing to stop working if things become contentious enough, I think is a statement of the obvious. Continuing on, inside Vietnam's plan to dent China's rare earth's dominance, this is Reuters via mining.com, Vietnam plans to restart its biggest rare earth mine next year with a Western-backed project that could rival the world's largest, according to two companies involved, as part of a broader push to dent China's dominance in a sector that helps power advanced technologies. The move would be a step toward the Southeast Asian country's aim of building up a rare earth supply chain, including developing its capacity to refine ores into metals used in magnets for electric vehicles, smartphones, and wind turbines. Vietnam has the second largest rare earth deposits, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, but they have remained largely untapped with investment discouraged by low prices that are effectively set by China because of its near monopoly on the global market. Visiting Hanoi this month to upgrade bilateral relations, U.S. President Joe Biden signed an agreement to boost Vietnam's ability to lure investors for its rare earth reserves. You do have to wonder... If the visit to Vietnam, how much of it did have to do with rare earths? It's a pretty interesting question. I'm sure there were other things going on, but that must have been a major part of the trip. In interviews with Reuters, 12 industry executives, investors, analysts, and foreign officials described plans for Vietnam, including investments they said showed how talk of de-risking supply chains to reduce reliance on China is translating into action. Some acknowledged the difficulties of forging a rare earth hub, but said the gambit could make Vietnam a viable player while assuaging strategic worries, even if China remained dominant. And this project, Dong Pao's output, would be slightly below that of California's Mountain Pass, one of the world's largest mines which produced 43,000 metric tons of rare earth equivalent in 2022, 
according to the U.S. Geological Survey. And they plan to develop additional mines. So Vietnam wants to be a powerhouse. And in a sense, why wouldn't they be? It seems like if they have the minerals, it's their opportunity to become very important strategically as an ally. So Vietnam is going to try and put a dent in Chinese rare earth domination. Continuing on, Canada, Japan agree to work more closely on battery supply chains. This is Reuters via mining.com. Canada and Japan on Thursday agreed to work more closely together to establish sustainable and reliable global battery supply chains, the Canadian government said in a statement. The two sides signed a memorandum of cooperation on the supply chains during a visit by Japanese industry minister Yasutoshi Nishimura, but gave no details. Canada, home to a large mining sector for minerals such as lithium, nickel, and cobalt, wants to woo firms involved in all levels of the electric vehicle supply chain via a multi-billion dollar green technology. You know, it really is amazing how it seems like global policy is dominated by this desire to make electric vehicles. And not everybody can win that battle. And if anything, it looks like China is well ahead, now being the largest car manufacturer or exporter in the world. So this is going to be quite the battle, and there's so many countries that want to win this battle that not everybody can win. And we have a quote from Natural Resource Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Quote, as worldwide demand shift increasingly towards cleaner forms of energy, Canada's critical minerals resources and battery supply chain will play a vital role in how we get there. Earlier this month, a unit of South Korea's Solus Advanced Materials said it would build a copper foil facility in the province of Quebec, producing technology for EV batteries. And here's a headline, LG Chem with YU to make battery materials in Indonesia and Morocco. So there is a worldwide race here. And again, this is all being done in the name of the environment. Everybody is trying to build cars, these massive metal machines. Again, when I look at the big picture here, I see the world digging up all the metal in the Earth's crust in order to try and make cars and in the name of the environment here. Continuing on, Philippines hopes to boost cooperation with U.S. in mining and batteries. This is Reuters via mining.com. The Philippines is eager to expand economic cooperation with the United States, particularly in critical minerals and production of battery components, Philippines Foreign Minister Enrique Manalo said on Friday. And this was at the UN General Assembly gathering of world leaders. And Manalo told an event hosted by the Asia Society that economic cooperation with the United States should keep pace with bilateral defense-related activities. Quote, one area is critical minerals, where we also hope to increase our cooperation. In other words, we want to increase the manufacturing in the Philippines rather than simply export our minerals to other countries. We would like to keep them at home and encourage investments in the manufacturing sector so we could produce the components in the Philippines using our own minerals. I mean, everybody wants a piece of this pie. That's what I see here. And really, the people who have the minerals here, as they say in the gold market, the person that has the gold makes the rules. And I don't see how everybody can profit here. Continuing on, Chinese gold buying is driving a paradigm shift in bullion. This is Bloomberg News, and this speaks directly to my interview with Paul coming up. And again, this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. 
What determines the price of gold? For much of the past decade, the answer was easy, the price of money. The lower rates fell, the higher gold climbed, and vice versa. Gold is the quintessential anti-dollar, a place to turn for those who distrust the fiat currency. So it seemed natural that prices would rise in a world of low real interest rates and cheap dollars. Or when rates went up, gold, which pays no yield, naturally became less attractive, sending prices tumbling. Well, not anymore, as inflation-adjusted rates soared this year to the highest since the financial crisis, bullion has barely blinked. Real yields, measured by the U.S. 10-year Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, or TIPS, jumped again on Thursday to the highest since 2009, while spot gold nudged down a mere half a percent the same day. The last time real rates were this high, gold was about half the price. The unraveling of the relationship between gold and real interest rates could be a paradigm shift for the precious metal, leaving investors struggling to calculate its fair value in a world where the old equations don't seem to apply. It's also raising questions about if and when the old dynamic might reassert itself, or whether it already has just from a new base. And scrolling down a bit, Anthony Saglimbene, chief market strategist at Ameriprise Financial, kind of sums it up. I get no yield on gold, but I can get yield on cash. Where am I going to go? In that respect, I'm surprised at how resilient gold has been. And this is what a lot of people have commented who are bullish on gold, which is the resilience of gold as yields rise, suggesting that gold is actually much stronger than it might appear. And scrolling down, one more quote here from Marco Piersimoni, co-manager at 6.2 billion euro PicTech multi-asset global opportunities fund, who said, quote, there are other assets such as long-term bonds that can be used in the portfolio for the same purposes as gold, but come with carry. In the current environment, gold is not a very convincing diversification asset. So, you know, this is how a lot of people think that you're better off in long-term bonds, apparently, over gold. Sounds pretty risky to me, but I am not at the 6.2 billion euro PICTEC multi-asset global opportunities fund. Rio Tinto halts mine work as second indigenous site damaged. So there's not too many details here, and it doesn't sound as nefarious as last time. But as David Lennox, a resource analyst at Fat Profits in Sydney, said, it's not a good look for Rio. It's hard to imagine Rio Tinto would have done this on purpose as it appeared last time. But nevertheless, there is a site that may have been damaged in Australia. And finally, a couple of headlines. Alcoa names new CEO in abrupt change as Harvey exits. So Roy Harvey leaves Alcoa. No real reason was given in the article, just that it was an, quote, abrupt change. And one more headline here. Fortuna Silver boosts presence in West Africa with Chesser buy. So Fortuna Silver Mines is taking its opportunities as sentiment is down on West Africa and on the mining sector, and they're expanding their footprint in West Africa. This is Cecilia Jamazmi on the Northern Miner, and they're expanding their footprint in West Africa after completing the acquisition of Australian Gold Junior Chesser Resources. And it sounds like Fortuna just did an all-share deal here, which sounds pretty convenient. So they continue to build their empire there, in West Africa. The project adds to Fortuna Silver's assets in West Africa, which it added in 2021 through the acquisition of fellow Canadian miner Roxgold, 
They include the Yeramoko Gold Mining Complex in Burkina Faso and the Seguelac Project in Côte d'Ivoire. So they are really doubling down on West Africa. Pretty interesting. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a look at precious metals and gold is trading at $1,929.90 per ounce. That is $27 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $23.25 per ounce. That is $0.38 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $912.97 per ounce. That is $20 lower than last week. And palladium is also lower at $1,231.20 per ounce. That is $12 lower than last week. Turning to industrial metals, copper is also lower at $3.64 per pound. That is $0.09 lower than last week. Iron ore is $1 lower at $121.18 per metric ton. Aluminum is a penny higher at $1.02 per pound. Lead is two cents lower at a dollar and two cents per pound. Nickel is twenty-two cents lower at eight dollars and seventy cents per pound, so still below nine dollars. Tin is higher at eleven dollars and ninety-one cents per pound. That is twenty-five cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at fifteen dollars and sixteen cents per pound. Lithium is lower at twenty-three dollars and sixty cents per kilogram. That is two dollars lower than last week. Uranium is higher at $65.50 per pound. That is $3.50 higher than last week. And zinc is unchanged at $1.15 per pound. Zooming out, basically metals as a whole edge lower or basically maintain their price with one glaring exception, which is uranium and a little bit of tin which is interesting in itself, but uranium, the real standout here. And it kind of shows at the end of the day how uranium really follows its own path. If you're looking for an uncorrelated asset, I am not, you know, some financial expert, so this is not financial advice. This is a great example of how uranium really just follows its own path. So here it is up $3.50 on the week. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back Paul from the Sirius Report to the Northern Miner podcast. We discuss oil and gold and silver, particularly gold and silver in the context of China and oil in the context of Russia. So a fascinating journey into geopolitics and metals and all things supply and demand in the global markets. I hope you enjoy this extended interview and I will see you on the other side. today i am very pleased to welcome back paul from the serious reports the northern minor podcast he is sometimes controversial among certain circles and we're just very glad for his very interesting and unique insights that he brings to us on geopolitics and natural resources so paul 
Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back, Adrian. It's always a pleasure. As ever. Well, I totally appreciate it, and I really enjoy what have become quarterly updates here. When the season turns, I send you a message to see if we can get your take on things. There is so much going on in this world, and I know you can speak a lot about many things here, and we have a limited time. So what I'd like to focus on are two areas here, which is gold and oil. And so starting with gold, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we're kind of near these all-time highs here in gold on the U.S. dollar. Sentiment is actually not overly excited on it, but we've been seeing this interesting story in the last two weeks about how premiums in China have been surprisingly high. I believe it was Bloomberg that was commenting on that, and they felt the need to explain it. I know you have a lot of insight on the gold market in China. I was wondering if you could give us your take on what is happening over there. Yeah, let's start going back. To, okay, sometimes people go, you always mention this, but it's an interesting point because before we came on to record, I mentioned the point that it's a decade ago. It was in 2013, I think it was about March or April, and I was at this conference and I was talking to someone because I did this little presentation about sort of gold. And, and then they came up to me and asked a question and said, look, you, know, you talk about the paper markets in the West, uh, I'm not sure I believe their paper markets. I go, okay, well, then we're not going to discuss that point. And that's, a, okay, you're entitled to your opinion. I mean, I think everybody knows that it is, to put it diplomatically, largely a paper-based market. But the point was, well, when does that paper market break in the West? I went, well, when the West is drained of gold and, and by extension silver. And I've stood by that assertion for the last decade. And we've had a lot of people thinking, Oh, the price is breaking now. You know, we've gone through $2,000 per ounce gold a couple of times, and people think it's off to the moon. And I went, well, no. It is clearly an indication of a lack of confidence in the dollar and by extension of the fiat currencies. That's the statement of fact. But it's not the breaking point. And part of what I also said at the time was, when you're likely to start to see an indication that the West is breaking is when you have this arbitrage, as you say, between the price in the West and what it sells in the East of China. So just very simply, I'm sure everybody knows, but you might be able to sell uh, an ounce of gold for $1,900 equivalent in, in the West, but in China it's 2000 There has been an arbitrage of over $100 in recent times per ounce. And then there's all this debate, what does this mean? And the West is, of course, trying, because it desperately wants to convince itself that the dollar reigns supreme, the dollar's going to be here for decades to come, nothing can replace it, nothing else could be a world reserve currency, and of course there isn't going to be a world reserve currency, as we've said before. So they're trying to square round square pegs into round holes and try to find an explanation as to why this phenomenon is happening. So, of course, they wanted to say, oh, well, the price is rising in China because they've got import controls. Well, that's not true. There is an import controls in China. You have to pay import tax somewhere between 3 and 8 or 9, 10%, depending on the transaction. I mean, in terms of foreign exchange, that's down to the two parties involved. And they don't care about this. There's all this argument, oh, it will cause capital outflow from China. But, of course, internally in the Chinese market, you cannot sell gold for dollars. It's illegal. 
I'm not saying there might not be a black market for this, but by and large, gold is sold inside China only in Yuan. That's a legal stipulation. That's something people largely don't understand. A lot of these capital flow arguments are always kind of trying to go, well, we have to find a way to, again, it all has to be about supporting the dollar. This is nothing to do with, with the dollar. And it's always just to do with all this disruption in the Chinese markets, rather like, you know, we're back to that window again, where China's collapsing, the economy's collapsing, the yuan's collapsing. You know, we, we, we have this story every couple of years, and it always resurfaces. And of course, it's just completely without merit, because anyone who understands China's financial system, the economy knows this is the case. So the issue internally in China is there's enormous demand for gold. I mean, and, you know, it, it ebbs and flows a little bit, but the Chinese are very clear to, to the Chinese people, you need to buy gold. You know, you're you holding, a, you know, a small percentage of your wealth in inverted commas in gold is a good idea. And the Chinese people very much culturally like to buy gold in whatever form. It doesn't necessarily just mean gold bars. It could be gold jewelry. Whatever. So there is definitely, again, an increase in that demand. But also, of course, we've seen the PBOC. I mean, it's unofficially, it holds vastly higher gold reserves. But officially, it's been admitting it's for the last 10 months, it's buying gold. So that's another reason why the idea of all this sort of capital control thing is nonsensical and they're trying to restrict imports because the PBOC in August bought 29 metric tons itself, which contradicts that thesis or assertion. So Whilst this demand increases, and therefore the situation comes about because in China they don't have paper markets, it means it's not this simple, but let's simplify the process. If I have a one-ounce contract in gold, it's backed by one ounce of physical gold. You, know, you can leave in storage or you can take delivery immediately. There's no issue, well, like the Germans who went to, to West Point and go, we want our gold back. And they got 300 tons back, but it took four years. I mean, if, if the gold's there, it should match the, the inventory bar list. And they can have it back, you know, within a week or a few days in reality. And of course, because we know the gold's not there. In China, if you want to take delivery, you can have delivery. And this is why huge amounts of physical gold, and we'll extend this discussion to silver shortly, implies you can just take physical delivery. So if there is enormous amounts of interest in holding gold and it increases, then the price in dollar terms will increase. Now, there is, of course, the argument that, I mean, come back to my point of a decade ago, that when the West is drained of gold, the paper markets will implode. Because quite simply, there won't be enough physical metal to be able to satisfy contracts in the sense that you can convince people just to not take delivery and they want to sell and you just give them the paper price. Fine, but there can be situations where suddenly people want physical delivery. There's definitely evidence in the West that's happening. So that puts a squeeze on the imbalance in the West between paper and physical, which is one huge problem. But then, of course, the other thing that people perhaps aren't aware of in the Shanghai Gold Exchange, there are a lot of Western players who have signed contractual agreements where they're going to deliver gold to the Shanghai Gold Exchange. Now, if they're struggling because of the imbalance in the West with physical, the risk is they can't fulfill those contractual needs in the East. 
And then there's a force majeure situation where they can't deliver. But equally, of course, the problem is there's people with short positions who don't want the paper price or the price in the West to rise too much because they risk being blown up and there's a risk. Bullying banks, bullying dealers or major too-big-to-fail banks to go to the wall because of it. Then you create a financial crisis on the basis of that and more so really for silver than gold. So there's those problems. But, you know, in China's case, why would they? They're not going to be bothered if there's an arbitrage in the price because, in a way, that facilitates draining the West quicker because there's an argument, and this may be partly why we're seeing people in, in the comics and LBA selling physical gold and physical silver because they think they can arbitrage it. And, okay, you would argue the price that or the differential would need to be a little bit high because they do have to pay import duties on gold and silver. So if the differentials is not greater than the import tax, then there's no point selling. But there might be situations where you, know, you can find a way of creating a deal that you can benefit from an arbitrage. So the argument could be someone in the West sells gold to the Chinese, makes an arbitrage of X percent, possibly. That's the idea. And then they might say, well, I want physical delivery. Now, if that arbitrage grows, the risk is, if it, say, gets to $150 or 200 then you're going to see this big stampede of people in COMEX LBMA going, I want physical delivery, because I want to then sell that physical to the Chinese. And they can't do it because there isn't the physical in the West. And then China could sit there and go, well, you've defaulted on your contract to us, your contractual obligation, so it becomes an enormous problem. So it's just really on the basis that China's going, well, there's huge physical demand in China, so therefore the price will move accordingly because we have true price discovery. And the fact that the West doesn't have that and it's trying to suppress the price, you, you will get this differential. And the West now is stuck between a kind of proverbial rock and a hard place because on the one hand, it wants to suppress the price because of short position. And we'll talk about silver in the narrow range, which is very interesting because it's trading sort of between $23 and $25 an ounce. And there's a reason for that. Well, from my perspective, if you go back to gold, the argument is, well, you can suppress the price because you're trying to protect the short position. But you might then allow this arbitrage to get big, in which case people will want to sell the physical, which actually causes more pressure on the on those holding paper contracts backed by nothing. Because then the risk is at some point, you know, the imbalance between the physical and the paper gets so big in the West, you're going to have to let the price rise. But if the price starts rising and the arbitrage maybe, you know, uh, continues to grow, that's one problem. But even if the price rises, you might get suddenly people holding gold at the COMEX and the LBMA going, well, hang on, the price has just risen 10 15%. I'm going to sell. Or they may suddenly go, well, hang on, I want to take uh, delivery, but they can't take delivery because of the imbalance between what we know actually physically does exist. So there's all these problems that exist in the gold markets in, in the West, which is feeding uh, China in the process. And of course, from the West perspective, is they just don't, they can't, it's very difficult to manage this because in a logical price discovery market, the price would just go up to reflect what is actually should be happening where you can have enormous physical buying. Then they just smash the price with fake paper contracts to 
and say, oh, well, someone's just dumped, I don't know, 100 tonnes of gold. No, they haven't. Where's the physical gold to? Who have they dumped it to? Who's bought the physical gold off them? There is no physical gold. Whereas in China, if you want to sell 100 tons, for argument's sake, you have to have the 100 tons, and the 100 tons has to be delivered to the Shanghai Gold Exchange. That's how it works. If they buy metal from the West, they don't go, well, I'll just believe that you've got 100 tons in some warehouse, in some vault somewhere in the West. They go, no, you have to physically deliver that metal to us. So we have the 100 tons. It's in our vaults, and we can then sell that. 100 tons to someone else. Well, that is the reality. So in essence, this is just market forces. I mean, the chances are because the West is trying to suppress the price in the West, that that differential and margin grows and grows and grows. And then, of course, you know, more and more metal is likely to then go East. And, and we're back to that point. If suddenly, I mean, I don't know, we, we the data is what it is, but I'm always, I'm not saying the data produced by the COMEX is wrong. I'm just saying it's difficult to assess how many paper ounces in reality exist for each ounce of gold. But let's say suddenly a whole bunch of people in the West go, I want to sell that gold. Then the question then would be, well, if 50% or 30% or 20% or even 10% of people in the West want to sell it, there's no way there's a 10 to 1 ratio between paper, gold, and physical. So that's the risk of where the markets could blow up, not just in terms of this arbitrage, but that's when, in reality, the drain in the West on metal has happened. There is no physical metal available to satisfy contractual obligations. That's really what it boils down to. People sometimes say, so you're telling me all the metal's gone? I said, no in terms of contractual obligations and the ability to deliver on those, if that fails, then the West is drained of metal or drained of gold because you simply cannot then have a functioning gold market when people are going, but I want physical delivery for whatever reason. I can't have it. Well, well I can have it in six months or not at all. Or you're telling me you're going to have to satisfy my contract in paper and you're going to just give me the money I I want my physical metal. Well, I can't have it. So it's game over. The credibility of Western gold markets is over. And ultimately, this is a big drive where we talk about the shift away from unipolarity to multipolarity. The big shift is in terms of gold markets, it's a lot of that traffic, a lot of how gold is traded is going to move to the east. It's going to be in the Middle East. And China and Russia and Iran eventually. And all these nations are opening up gold exchanges because that's going to be where the global south will gravitate gold trading. So then the question is, what's the West left with? And the West suffers huge credibility damage and suddenly commodities in the East are priced very differently and not just gold. Then you're going to have a, this situation where the world's going to go, well, we trust these other markets to operate in the future because we think there's true price discovery based on supply and demand. So in essence, that's a kind of shortened version or still quite long of what's actually going on. Now, obviously, does the arbitrage continue? And then we've explained what the risks of that is. Maybe it carries on, maybe it doesn't. But it's certainly putting additional pressure. And I don't think it takes a lot now to potentially break the Western markets because 
we know a huge amount of gold has moved from west to east. I mean, we know this from just sovereign gold holdings and what's happening. So the question isn't up for debate in that regard. It's just a question of how long does it continue before those wholesale gold markets, because that's where it matters. Everyone goes to me, but I can go and buy some gold. But bullion deal, I said, yeah, but that's a drop in, in a gallon bucket. Retail sales isn't the thing that's going to break the West. It's the enormous wholesale sales that go on. And also there's the opaque market where huge amounts of gold shift. There'll be some distressed person who wants to sell, I don't know, a ton of gold for some reason, and they're looking for a buyer. But you don't see that going through official data. That's just they've got some dealer who will then go and find some buyers or a buyer and look to fill that order, and that order could take a month, six weeks, six months, well, who knows? And depending on, on what they, or someone wants to buy that much, it's the same process. You never hear about that because that's the opaque market. But enormous amounts of tonnage of gold moves in that market as well. So we also have to factor in that that will also have an impact on the supply of physical gold in the West. I mean, okay, equally, Colin, there might be people in the East, but they'll just go to the Shanghai Gold Exchange or one of the exchanges and go, I just want to sell gold. I'm, you know, I'm a distressed seller. And they'll accordingly reach an agreement on what they're prepared to buy off them. So, yeah, it isn't all just bad news for the West and potentially some impact in the East. But the difference is, again, they're selling real metal. So whatever gold exists in the Shanghai Gold Exchange is what they say it is in the West. How much gold does the COMEX and the LBMA actually hold? And no one can answer that question. Really. It's very difficult. I, I certainly don't believe it's one ounce for one ounce. I mean, OK, the data points to this enormous disparity. But I mean, we, we could be even worse than that, potentially. So, of course, this is always ultimately the future's about commodities. He who holds or cut the commodities owns them who owns the physical gold, is going to be the ones that drive price discovery and drive the market. And we know the West isn't driven by market fundamentals. It's driven by a desire to have price suppression, price manipulation. And it doesn't matter which market in commodities terms. We know that absolutely is the case because fundamentally, commodities markets don't operate based on true price discovery. Whereas in the East, okay, and we're not saying that it can't be flawed in the future, there may be problems, but thus far there's far more of an emphasis on actually having a proper price discovery with gold. And then of course, by extension, silver. But I'll stop there because then I think silver is a really important discussion point because it highlights the myths the West is making about imports. And it, it squarely sort of knocks it between the eyes and proves that it's nonsense. Well, yes, let's go there then. And I guess I have a couple of questions within the larger silver question. If you can weave within that, uh -huh. uh, this like it, it seems to me that there is an incentive on China's part to drink, you know, like, I mean, it's kind of, it seems to me that it is one of the marks of geopolitical power is being, say, the biggest gold holder in the world. There's a reason the U.S. is the biggest gold holder in the world, at least on paper, right? <laughs> and that's seen yeah, yeah. as a form of geopolitical power. Of course, it's wealth. And so it seems to me that why wouldn't they want to, you know, however, whatever mechanism is out there, why wouldn't they want to attract you know, gold into the market by 
however it's working, offering a few more dollars and giving that incentive uh, to bring it in, that arbitrage. So within all that, and I guess that I'm trying to loop a lot of questions into one here, but if it's possible, how far along is the Shanghai Gold Exchange? Like how credible of an institution is that? If you can just give like a minute or two on that and, and go into you know what's happening in silver from your perspective. Yeah, okay, let's start. Yeah, the Shanghai Gold Exchange is, is great credibility. I mean, there's Western players in the market, and there's a lot who want to be in the market. I mean, so yeah, it's it's credible. And, and, you know, if you want to to go and trade gold, you can have it stored in China. But if you phone them up and go, I want physical delivery, it happens. I know people who deal in these markets. A few years ago, I had people going, oh, I'm not sure about the market there. And I go, okay, well, Here's an asset test. Go and trade in that market. These are big, big players. They're not retail. So, I mean, let's be uh, clear about that. They're wholesale people. But they've gone and said to the Chinese, okay, I want to buy whatever they want to buy. And the Chinese go, okay, fine. And so they bought some. And then they've almost tried to think, I'll catch the Chinese out. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm going to catch them out by... I want physical delivery. And they went, okay, where, where, where do you want it delivered to? And it happened very rapidly. And they were like, oh, oh, okay. So, yeah, it has credibility. Of course, it has credibility in the East. But it also has credibility in the West. I mean, and there are Western players who will very happily deal with them because, you know, they know that uh, there's never been a situation where there's been a default on any you know, physical gold trading in the Shanghai Gold Exchange. You know, never once has anyone gone, I couldn't get delivery. We haven't heard, like I say, the stories of the Bundesbank going, I want our gold back, and they're going, you can't have it. Well, I mean, that's clearly obvious. The gold is no longer where it is. And when the, the Bundesbank got gold back, it wasn't with the same gold bar inventory. That's right. clearly obvious. Right. The reason it took years is because they were scrambling around to buy the gold. To give it to the Germans. So, so yeah, it does have immense credibility. And just to interject here then, so is it mm -hmm. just in terms of scale, like do you have a sense of the scale of the Shanghai Gold Exchange versus others, or is that kind of a murky question and it's not quite clear? Well, unfortunately, it's only murky because we don't really know what's going on in the West. <laughs> That's well, funny. You know, I mean, but yeah, it's, it's a grown exchange. I mean, it trade, I think, this year so far, it's about 1,400 tons of metal has gone into the Shanghai Gold Exchange. And that's a lot. It's not, you know, and it's it's only going to grow and develop and get bigger because okay. there's going to be, you know, more and more demand. I mean, there's a, you know, there's there's a lot of nations in the global south who, who utilize the Shanghai Gold Exchange. There are players in the West, of course, who do. I mean, I don't know the transparency of this. But from what I understand, I don't know the extent, but there are obviously buyers in the West of gold, and they have utilized Shanghai Gold Exchange to buy some of that gold. I mean, I deliberately told people, I know, tell me if you ever have a problem. I've never heard anything. So, and these people were skeptics. You know, they were like, oh, well, I'm not sure about this, but it has worked. So going to, to the point of silver, Silver's been a very interesting story for me for a number of years, really since what I call the pandemic years that started in 2020. And I mentioned it in the podcast at the time, the 2020 and 2021, China was buying up enormous amounts of physical sale. And then India bought about 10,000 tons in 2022. And from January to August this year, China has bought 
20,000 tons of silver. And there is enormous demand. I mean, on a daily basis, the effectively the Shanghai Futures Exchange, which is where the silver, the silver exchange is, the outflows are enormous. We're talking daily 10 tons, 20 tons, 30 tons. Now, contrary again, and this is contrary to popular wisdom in the West, China's economy is collapsing. Well, the physical demand for silver is largely industrial-based. So if China's collapsing, why is the massive industrial demand for silver? Well, we know why. We know why the big, you know, I mean, China's a huge manufacturer of solar panels, as we know, the biggest in the world. And of course, every solar panel has you know, half a gram of silver in it, roughly speaking. And that's just one example. You know, the whole, okay, the green revolution, we're not going to get into that discussion. I think everybody knows that I have uh, a very negative opinion, but not for the reasons a lot of people do with all the conspiracy stuff, but we're not having that discussion today. But the point is, there's enormous demand for industrial use. Now, one thing we do know is that and I've worked in the mining space in terms of mergers, acquisitions, and and obviously silver is largely just a byproduct. You don't just get silver mine. You might have silver, lead, silver, copper, there's all that mix. So silver extraction is increasingly difficult. There's a difficulty in silver production. And apparently, I read the other day that Mexico's silver production, which is the biggest silver producer officially in the world, is at a four-year low. So there is enormous physical pressure in the markets in terms of this. Is, you know, again, we're not talking about the retail sector. Let's don't judge our perspective of what's happening in gold and silver based on the fact of how much silver I can buy from my local bullion dealer. It's really not relevant. No disrespect, but we're not even eating crumbs at the table. It's less than crumbs. So going back to the point of the wholesale markets, though, so there's less production happening and there's huge physical demand because of the industrial applications, okay? Because nations don't use it as a monetary method. Okay, there's an argument I've said that, you know, at some point Mexico could back its currency with silver. I mean, that's just an observation, not, not uh, that it will happen. But by and large, it's not going to be used. It's a sort of more of a retail person, monetary metal. And I'm not disputing that that has validity. It does. It is sound money. But it's more of an industrial application. And that's growing. So, again, this is back to the point when people go, there's import restrictions in China. Well, they've imported record amounts of silver so far this year. So that knocks that on the head. It's just nonsense. But, of course, in the process, what's China doing? It's creating this imbalance. And this is why China's trading compared to the West in dollar terms, 10% higher, roughly 25, 50, something like that in dollar terms for an ounce of silver. And it's because, of course, again, there's enormous uh, demand. And China is going to obviously is trying to suck up all the silver because it wants it for industrial purposes. I mean, this is they're not they're not hiding the fact. They were doing it in 2020 and 2021, and practically no one noticed. Why? I, that for me, it's always about noticing the things that matter, and that matters. And okay, India too, they sort of dropped off a bit this year. But this is causing this huge physical imbalance. And again, this comes back to the point 
where we've seen some interesting evidence to suggest physical drainage of silver in the comics, which supports the view that maybe people are taking sort of advantage of an arbitrage or also because, you know, the situation is they have contractual obligations now to sell silver in the West to meet those in the East. But anyway, there seems to be a drain in physical, whatever physical exists. And we know paper silver, the physical silver is even far worse than paper gold to physical gold. So the question is, again, does there come a point in the West where there is no physical for delivery? And again, it's back to this point when I made the, the observation that in the West, silver's trading in this very narrow range of 23 to 25. Now, for me, the implication of that is there is a big move to try and close short position. Now, a lot of people like to speculate, oh, silver's off to the moon. It's going to go to this price or this price. That is of no interest to me. Because, you know, again, it's, it'll only happen when the West drained silver. Because you can always suppress the price of silver when you can still manage this disparity between physical and paper silver in the West, no matter how big it's in. There's ways to manage that. It's when you can't manage it. So it's not price-related. It's how much physical is in the West. Well, the indications are from COMEX data that the physicals is obviously falling. And therefore, the disparity between the paper and the physical in the West in the comics and Galvin May is increasing. So that puts more and more pressure, which is why we might be seeing a situation where they're trying to manage it this narrow way to close short positions out. So bullion banks or some big bank doesn't go to the wall or has, they have to have a, a massive bailout or we get some financial crisis on the back of that, which in theory and principle could happen. So, again, it's the situation. There's no import controls in China. There is huge demand, and it's industrial-based, and you can't control that. And therefore, you know, if more and more physical goes to China, and there's less available in the world, and production's decreasing, then you get a squeeze on the physical. That's going to eventually have a problem in the West. So, the argument is, let's, we'll just pluck some figures to illustrate a point. Let's just say for argument's sake, there's 100 ounces of silver paper to one ounce of physical in the West, for argument's sake. Well, if you're trying to close the short positions, you might be able to get that down to 91 ratio, or 80, or 70. And if you know physical delivery is going to be a problem, you're going to want to close those short positions out as fast as possible, and as quick as possible. Because the risk is, if that blows up with that kind of disparity, you're going to have a major problem. And also, it becomes unmanageable. So, if you can range find it to that extent, till you can manage the short position, that you, I mean, there's all this argument of net short and net long. Well, you know, you have to be a little bit careful of what that means. I mean, it still ultimately boils down to, to physical metal. You can be paper long and paper short. I don't care if you're net long in pay. That doesn't answer the question. If suddenly there's a huge demand for physical delivery in the West, it's irrelevant. You, you're going to be bust. You're going to be screwed because you cannot satisfy physical delivery. So for me, that's more important. So there's clear evidence this is being the price differential, the arbitrage between China and, and the West is driven by physical demand through industrial application. So there is an import controls. And this is just market demand supply. And if there's huge demand in China for, for silver, then you know, the price is going to rise because that's how it should be. You know, if you 
You know, it, it's quite simple if the demand outstrips the supply. You don't smash the bank to, get, to suck people so they'll sell their physical so you can satisfy the demand. The price rises on the basis that it's a physical market. Again, one ounce of contract, silver contract, is one ounce of physical. So, you know, if people have big demand, then you're going to raise the price accordingly because, you know, if I come to you in, in, in the Shanghai Gold uh, Silver Exchange effectively, and yeah, I say, well, I want 50 tonnes of silver for industrial application. They're going to go, well, okay, but we need to source that 50 tonnes. Now, you know, uh, so, okay, sorry, you're going to have to pay this price because we can't source it at the price that it currently is because the physical doesn't exist. So that's normal free market dynamics. I mean, we've forgotten in the West what free markets are because they don't exist in any capacity. Everything's just an illusion. So in some senses for me, I think the silver market is more of an Achilles heel than gold. I'm not saying gold isn't a problem, it is. But for me, silver's far more of a problem in terms of the risk that poses to bullion banks, bullion dealers, to too big to fail banks who have, there's an argument who has exposure to what, again, there's you know, Back to this point, there's a lot of deliberation over who owns, who has massive physical holdings in the West. There's, well, I don't know whether that's true or not. No, don't have the visibility, and no one does. It's just supposing things. But there is no doubt there are huge physical short positions, and it's difficult to know who holds them. But if suddenly again there's enormous physical demand because of the arbitrage from and People want to sell in the West or they want to sell for whatever reason. And you can't do it. You get force majeure, then the markets in the West are dead. It's over. Who's going to trust them? I mean, going forward, would you trust the market if it did end up in force majeure and they went, sorry, we can't deliver on our obligations to you? I mean, it's just horrendous. So, But that's what happens. And it always, in the end, comes down to the fact that there has to be an enormous drainage of that physical metal away from the from the West and it goes to the east. Because in the east, it's ring fenced. It is one ounce of physical to one ounce of paper. Now the argument is people say to me, well, if it stays in the West, why don't you have that problem? Well, because the West, <laughs> the market players will all scratch each other's backs and go, well, we're not all going to go to the wall. We're not going to risk blowing up the market. So if I've got some physical but you're lacking. Yeah, we'll, we'll, here's, here's the deal. We'll just give you a bit of physical to tie you over so you don't have that problem. And, you know, at some point you can give it back to us. We'll, we'll just manage the market somewhere. Whereas if it goes to the east, you don't have that luxury anymore. You can't try and plug gaps when there might be physical demand that you can't meet. But here's an interesting point. If you go back to sort of 2020, uh, around that point when, and then we had silver getting to about $30 an ounce. And a lot of people going, oh, retail, what made this happen? No. What caused it was China. Because China was buying massive amounts of physical silver. The physical silver didn't exist. And they lost control of it, and they went, well, hang on. We're just going to have to raise the price. Okay, we're just going to have to hope that we don't blow up the, the short paper market. But eventually, of course... They managed to, to keep control of it because the demand in China didn't carry on. It was short-lived for a period, quite a long period, and they managed to somehow navigate out of that problem, and silver got pushed down. 
Now, people say, well, can't they keep doing that? Well, no, because there comes a point you might get away with it, but you aren't going to continue to get away with it because, again, it's back to the point. There's less and less physical in the West to be able to kind of leverage that imbalance between paper and physical again. It's the same principle as the gold market. So that's the big difference. So for me, silver's the biggest Achilles heel. So I always get people going, when's this going to happen? Well, I don't care when it happens. It will happen. But, you know, we, we're seeing a point at the moment where I don't think I've seen stresses from my perspective in Western paper market like this for a very long time. Does it mean they break? Not necessarily, because anything could happen with the physical markets. I mean, and maybe China somehow suddenly its economy falls over. I don't think it will. And they suddenly go, well, we've got all this silver, we don't want it. And they start dumping it into the market and smashes the price. I mean, I'm not saying that happens, but I'm trying to illustrate the point. You know, that it's not just a very simple, well, this happens, which means that, that that leads to something else and something else. It's far more nuanced and complicated than that. Yes, and you could argue it's in China's interest to keep this going as long as possible. Because right now, they're in the situation where, okay, let's say that all these speculations are true and that there is, in fact, a suppression. Then they go, well, we're more than happy to pay 5 or 10% above the suppression to basically attract the metal our way, it seems to me. And to your point about, uh, you know, maybe to some it might seem like science fiction, you know, of, you know, okay, this is all going to run out. But I feel like we've seen a very real life precedent at the LME, the London Metal Exchange, with nickel. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. whatever happened there, it was a blow up of a certain kind, right? And if it was just uh, like something happened there, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was clearly, even if it was a temporary problem, that's what happens when suddenly someone wants physical delivery and they can't get it. Then the market right. goes haywire. You know, so, yeah, it's, it, it illustrates a very important point. And if that becomes a sustained problem, then, you've got, then you, know, you have to, at some point, you have to throw your hand up and go, it's over. And to come back to the point of buying silver, I mean, I'm not going to say what I think silver should be priced at because it doesn't really matter. But what matters is, let's say for argument's sake, based on real physical demand and based on physical supply, some might argue that you know, silver should be significantly priced higher. So for China, China might be sat there going, do you know what? We'll happily hoover all the silver up in the world for 20, 30, 40, whatever dollars an ounce equivalent because it's dirt cheap. In real terms, it's dirt cheap. You know, it, it, that's the reality. It's not what the price is. It's not like, well, silver's higher than it's been in the last two years or whatever, for argument's sake. Well, why would you want to buy it? The question is for industrial applications. The argument is given the amount of silver that's consumed, it's dirt cheap. So why wouldn't you want to buy all the dirt cheaper silver? Because there might come a point when there is a problem, and it might be a long-term problem. It might be more, well, hang on, we need to put our foot down because now silver's priced in real terms. So it makes silver miners more attractive, so it will attract capital to go and exploit these assets and put them into production. But that takes two, three, four, five, six years. We might have a period of time when 
there are silver shortages. And China's going, we're sitting pretty because we've got all the silver. So our production is fine. We're going to be able to manufacture stuff and sell it to the world. What are you going to do? You haven't got it. So why, why wouldn't you take advantage of that? And I think that's what they have been doing for the last three, four years, because they knew at some point, as we knew, the physical demand would become a huge problem for delivery. So, you know, and of course, as well, silver is a strategic asset. So China's, I mean, it'll issue some stuff. Uh, well, in Shanghai, there's this much silver, but how much silver China actually holds is very difficult to know. It's a matter of national security, rather like their real gold holdings, the same. And there are a lot of other commodities that they don't disclose it because it is a matter of national security. They're not going to say to the West, we actually hold 40,000 tons of gold. They'll go, no, it is two and a half thousand. Yeah, because we produce 600 metric tons a year for decades. That's why we've only got two and a half thousand tons because bear in mind, we don't ever export that gold. Well, just do the simple math. So, you know, why it, set off the alarms? Yes, right. Exactly. Like why? I mean, let's again. It seems like to me this is a great situation for them. And even I mean, we saw, and I want to get to oil here right away, but we saw in the copper markets it got very low on the LME their stocks. I mean, and I'm not like some longtime watcher, but I mean, you're starting to see articles about the kind of surprising amount of deliveries. And then I started following it and we started seeing very low stocks on the LME. Now, now it's the exact opposite and they have come back. So to your earlier point, nobody knows what could happen. And with silver being tight, doesn't mean it will stay tight, interestingly. But it does kind of bring up this whole, you know, strategic point that, you know, if you're China, you don't necessarily want the LME to run out of copper because you like a under four dollar copper price. So maybe you even want to give a bit of put, a, you know, make more copper available in the short term in order to kind of calm the market so you can keep, you know. And I mean, this is getting very speculative, but I mean, one has to look at motives here and how people would think. And one, it seems to me that China understands resources and they understand metals and they understand that these aren't infinite in supply. No, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. I mean, look, here's, let's look at the situation. I'm China, and I'm going, right, I want to buy in the next three years 50,000 tons of silver. What am I going to do? I'm not going to sit there and go put an order in for 50,000 tons today. You just get it gradually. You know, you try and keep buying. I mean, you know, it's... If you want to buy a whole bunch of uh, whatever, you want to buy it as cheap as possible. So you're not going to blow up the market while you still have defined goals as to how much metal you want. Or, you know, it's like, you know, if you want to buy shares in a company and, you know, and particularly you may be volatile, you don't put an order in, for that. you just drip, you just gradually get the market to feed your order and do it by small amounts over a period of time so you don't upset the liquidity and the volatility in the price. And it's the same with, with, with gold and silver. But a small point worth making with regard to gold is, is you know, there's always this idea, well, if you raise interest rate, uh, then the price of gold will fall because gold's a neutral asset. Okay, this is just working on the basis that this is a very, very kind of ignorant standpoint because everything's very different now in terms of, what we're seeing economically, financially, we're in uncharted waters. But let's just work on the basis that the mindset is, well, 
as we raise interest rates, the price of gold should be knocked accordingly. Now, interest rates have risen over 5%. Price of gold hasn't fallen at all in dollar terms. Now, they thought by this point, gold would be at 1200 or less. Well, the reason gold isn't at 1200 or less is because of all the physical buying. And again, you cannot manipulate the price. And this shows that, A, the interest rate isn't really an important criteria anymore for holding gold because everybody realizes holding gold is, is a strategically important decision to make for sovereign nations more than anyone else now in volume terms. They don't care about interest rates. They're there going, we need to protect our nations against what we know is coming. And but, but the whole basis is that this is another example of how the price in dollar terms is supported because you can't manipulate the price that low. If gold was currently at $1,200 an ounce for argument's sake, can you imagine the amount of physical, there wouldn't be any physical left in the West because all these nations would be going, well, gold should be much higher. So they'd be going, I'm, I'm, I'm buying it, you know, dirt cheap. Just get everything. So there is also that side that you can't now dictate markets the way you used to and say, well, we can just smash a price and, and there won't be any sentiment for gold. I mean, there's a lot of statements in the West. Oh, sentiment for gold, <coughs> excuse me, has fallen off a cliff edge. Well, no, it hasn't. Look at sovereign nation. They keep buying huge amounts of gold. So that's the point with this. They, they're trying to encourage selling on, to some degree because they, you know, the price will fall, but the price isn't falling because there is huge physical demand. And you can't suppress the price the same way. Okay, you might say we don't want to go over $2,000 an ounce or to $2,001, $2,002 because be, you might be a stampede of even more people or in high net worth individuals or institutions wanting to buy gold. But, you, but this proves that sovereign wealth funds and sovereign nations and other high net worth institutions are buying enormous amounts of gold and it's supported the Western price because, you know, it's back to this situation, you know, you, if you smash the price too much, then you're not going to deter buying, you're just going to encourage it. But equally, you know, they don't want the price going too quickly, too high, because then suddenly alarm bells go off in, in Western financial institutions. Because, made this point before, gold gets to $2,500 an ounce roughly. You're going to see the biggest stampede into gold in the West or an attempt to. Well, where's the gold? Because again, huge amounts of gold moving West to East. It's, it's not here. So here's the question then. If suddenly there's big demand in the West and they can't satisfy it and the price would just keep moving, you know, you're going to go to the Chinese or go, you want some gold? How much do you want? Well, you're going to pay $3,000 an ounce. You can't have it at this price because this is normal markets, you know, dynamics, you know, and this is the problem. So there comes a point in the West where the argument is that suddenly there's huge demand for physical in the West because of market, real market forces such as you know, what's happening financially and economies, etc. And the general principle that the West of an empire is failing. You won't buy any at 1900. Okay, what price are you going to pay? And, and how, at what point, do you start to see 
potentially gold moving back from east to west. And how does that dynamic work? It's not going to work at these prices. But at some point, that might change. And then you might start to get true market price discovery also based on the fact that in the West, if people buy it, they'll, they'll get physical delivery or it'll be vaulted from. It's physical. It's real. And that might then encourage Westerners to go, well, I'm not buying it from Western you know, uh, suppliers, even though that, the markets may have blown up at that point in the West. But let's say they haven't. And you go to someone in the West and go, well, I want to buy a uh, 200 kilo of gold. You go, but I want delivery. Oh, well, no, sorry. That could take us, you know, two, three months. You go to the Chinese, I want 200 kilos. They go, okay, fill the paperwork in customs. We'll have it in a month, which is not unusual. I mean, that's pretty reasonable. Where are they going to buy it from? (laughs) From China. And then that means China starts controlling the physical market as well. So because... They're the ones who have the physical to sell in the market because it, then it's a real market. So, you know, it, because there is going to come a point when those in the West who finally understand what's going on will buy uh, gold. And they won't buy it if it's at 1200 or 1300 But if it's at 2500 they'll be breaking doors down to buy it because that's their mentality. They don't work on the basis that this is dirt cheap because they think if it's at 1200 there's no problem. Or 1,400, no problem. Uh, 1,900, no, not really. What's the problem? Look, the Dow's at 34,000 and employment's this because all the market data is an illusion, but they believe the illusion. So you know, they don't see it as being a viable option to buy, but there comes a point when if you know, the Western paper markets break down and it has to reflect tree price discovery, you know, then all of a sudden the whole dynamic shifts and they would then become buyers. And that then support the whole general global market on physical demand and supply, whereas, you know, as opposed to all this fictitious paper nonsense. But there has been controlling, you know, prices because dollars, you know, dollar was the world reserve currency. It's been controlling it for for decades. Well, that's coming to an end. Fascinating. And yeah, it kind of brings back this, uh, as I like to put it, it's like gold is not going up because gold is not going up in a sense. Like there's there's going to be a momentum play, as you say, uh, when it hits $2,500, then all of a sudden perhaps people start to pile in and gold will go up because gold's going up, as I, as I like to say, uh, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, now, just on the oil market as we wrap up here, I mean, we're seeing incredibly interesting things. We've seen a huge rise since, I think, late June, early July in both WTI and Brent crude. We're above $93 here on Brent crude. We've seen these headlines come out recently on Russia. I think it was restricting diesel exports of a certain kind, except to, you know, for lack of a better term, friendly nations or nations within, I don't know if it was the former Soviet Union. What is your take as we finally, as we kind of wrap up here on the oil market and the dynamics at work? What is happening over there? Right. Okay. I mean, I made the point back in 2016 when OPEC Plus was kind of unofficially born when it was obviously it was going to be huge market cooperation between the Russians and the Saudis. And this was always about wrestling control of the oil markets from the United States. It was as simple as that. I mean, okay, there's all the, the, the political reason. The U.S. has been constantly meddling. 
in Saudi and trying to open the House of Saud because they feared Saudi rapprochement with Iran, which at the time I said will happen, and it happened. And Saudi, you know, embracing China and Russia, which of course is happening. But yeah, so we're now at this situation where there's all this idea the United States is the biggest oil producer in the world. Well, why has it got no control over oil markets? Which it doesn't. Absolutely not. I mean, we've seen with the strategic petroleum reserves where the U.S. has been begging the Chinese and the Russians to produce more oil to get the price down. The U.S. wants prices in oil. It tried to manipulate them by dumping hundreds of millions of barrels. It's had zero effect whatsoever. And the Saudis effectively publicly came out and said, we've had enough of the United States trying to manipulate oil markets. They didn't quite say that, but that's what they meant. So there's been this this goal with the with between the Saudis and the Russians. They're in de- I mean, if Saudis denying they're doing this, but it's so obvious what they're trying to do is crush the United States in terms of its oil market because the United States, I don't think, is anywhere near the biggest oil producer. But it actually is a net importer. Therefore, it doesn't have control over the oil market. So if it's a net importer, it's having to buy oil from the Russians or someone indirectly from the Russia, or the Iranians, or the, the Venezuelans. I mean, all the nations, they want to sanction and have their leaders removed. They're just, how about, you know, having a really intelligent move going, I've got an idea, let's try and kill, you know, these sovereign nations, when we actually depend on them, because they need to have the oil for diesel. And diesel's hugely important, as we know, in the United States. So the whole basis of this is, we're going to manipulate the price and make it higher and higher and higher. Because Russia's very happy with higher oil prices. Saudi is. The United States isn't. It needs lower prices. So they're trying to kill the United States with massive inflation through energy. It's very obvious what they're doing. And you make the point absolutely. If you go back to, what are we at, June? So three months ago, oil got down to 68 $67 a barrel on WTI. And you know, there was this big idea, oil's going to 50, and all this, we're going to crush Russia, and, uh, and the price cap's going to work, of course. That, none of that's happened. The price cap is a total failure, unsurprisingly. But what have we seen since? Oil's now in WTI terms, about nearly $90 a barrel. Has been kind of around that point for quite some time. Now, this always comes back to the point that the United States has also lost control of oil markets. It has no control over it. It's the OPEC plus nation, driven principally by Saudi and Russia. And they're going, well, the US is doing this. Okay, let's cut some more production. Let's just keep hiking the price. Because they just want the revenue. They don't care how much oil they produce. If there's a shortfall of oil in the world, well, who cares? Because whilst all this is going on, we're selling oil to Chinese for a lot cheaper. Because this is what everyone keeps looking at the price going, China can't afford this oil price. Do they think China's paying spot price for oil? They've got long-term negotiated contract or flexible arrangement. China goes, yeah, I'll buy a few million barrels off you. Talk to the Iranians. The Iranians go, okay, we'll take $50 a barrel equivalent because it costs around $3, $4 a barrel to produce oil. They don't care. So China hoovers up all the oil, puts it in these enormous storage facilities, I mean, it's got at least a billion barrels of oil in storage there, at least. 
and they're constantly building more and more storage facilities. They're just mopping up the oil, dirt cheap, and they'll drip it into the market, which is the irony is. I mean, this is how ridiculous the West is. It's going, we're sanctioning Russia's oil, and Russia sells it to China, who then immediately sells it to the West for a premium. So Russia's happy it gets the price it wants, and China makes a cut on the top, and the West gets gets hammered for a far higher price than if they just played ball with the Russians. Okay, we're not getting into the war and the ideology and, and the mindset in the West, but it's just economic madness or financial madness. It's just simple maths and you're screwing yourself over. So that's why we're seeing the oil price, the what is, what effectively that's telegraphing is the West doesn't control the oil price. And the the oil price is what it is in dollar terms because it reflects the weakness in the dollar. It reflects the weakness of the dollar as a settlement of of commodities. I mean, if you went back 10 years ago and said the United States has lost control of the oil price and the the Saudis and the Russians control it, and they're going to crush the United States' economy with higher energy prices, no one would have believed you. They would have said it's impossible. Well, welcome to the new world. Why? because Russia is an enormous oil producer. Saudi still is an enormous oil producer. And the US needs either Russian energy, Iranian energy, or Venezuelan energy. Now, you know that's why they're trying to be all nice to the Iranians currently going, we'll remove all the restrictions and embargo. Here, you can have $20 billion back that we've frozen in Western accounts for, for years. No, have it back. JCPR, don't worry about this. Because they're desperate, because they want Iranian oil. And Iran's going, well, we'll have this, but you're still not having the oil. They went to Venezuela begging for, well, we spent how many years trying to remove Maduro? Oh, Maduro, will you please let us buy Venezuelan oil? And he went, no, forget it, you're not having it. Because you tried to overthrow me as president. You know, this was deliberate, a stated intention. So the US has lost control, and this is why, in dollar terms, the price of oil just keeps rising and rising. I mean, ordinarily, you would look at this and go, hang on. There's definitely, at least in the Western world, a clear recession. We're already in recession. We pretend we're not, but we are. And surely then there's going to be far less demand for oil. But of course, what they're forgetting in the West as well is that the world exists far beyond Europe, the United States, including the UK and Europe and you know, there's this big thing called the Global South, which is nearly 90 or 85% of the world's population, big, huge energy demand there. And they want to buy all the energy. They want as much oil as they can get out of oil and gas. So, and if you don't have the supply in the West, well, you're going to end up having to pay a lot more for a barrel of oil or whatever. In, and the same applies to gas as well. So they've lost control of the energy markets in the West, and particularly the United States. And of course, the Ukraine war has just exacerbated that problem. And there is no solution to this. So in terms of the US and all this, they're a big oil producer. Well, they're a net oil importer. So what use is that? And US oil production is going to start falling off because they've exhausted the best shale wells. If that, if their production in the next one, two, three, five years, whatever, starts to fall off a cliff, they're in serious trouble because... Where are they going to get all the oil they need? From who? Also, if you know if you're going to upset the world, then the world's going to go, 
sorry, we're dealing with these new markets in Asia. We we've contractual obligations. Sorry, there's not enough oil to sell to you, and this is the problem Europe's facing. Where they've cut off their nose to spite their face, and now we've got this situation where Germany's going. We actually have to buy Russian LNG this winter. Well, you know, remember those the uh, Nord Stream pipelines? Could have had one and two functioning there. Dirt cheap gas contract. Now you're paying a lot more than you would have, and you won't get the same supply, so you're still going to have supply chain problems. Well, this is something the West is just not thinking. And the longer this situation goes on, the more the, the Russians and the Iranians and the Saudis are going to be going, well, we're going to go and take advantage of these huge markets in the global south world. We're going to sell them energy. And we know they're not going to try and sanction us at some point. And we're going to trade in non-dollar terms because then we can't be sanctioned. And they can't cut off the ability to sell this energy to the rest of the world. So it's, it's just like a fait accompli and the West has fallen headfirst into a problem of its own making. And it still hasn't grasped the, the futures about who owns the commodity. Who has food security and energy security, and who, you know, and who who's who's a friendly nation and who isn't? And they just haven't they haven't grasped that they're just digging this gigantic hole for themselves. But there comes a point when that has to end, and then the question, you know, the uncomfortable question is, how do they repair the damage done with with Russia, for example? Now, okay, people say it's a two way street, fine. But Russia doesn't care if it sells energy to the West anymore because it's, it's finding alternative markets. I mean, it's got huge deals in the pipeline. The Asian nations in Asia, it dwarfs anything they'll ever sell to the West. So if it has to those markets and it sells to them, why would they care? It's the West that needs the energy. So what's the West going to do? Go crawling back on its hands and knees, begging the Russians and say, we need your energy. And and what's Russia going to do? What, what are their demands going to be to make that happen? And that's the risk. They could say, well, and I'm speculating, they could go, well, well, we'll fix Nord Stream 1 and 2 for starters, but here's the deal. We'll only provide the energy if, I don't know, NATO doesn't exist in Europe anymore. And they could drive that kind of bar. And there's nothing they, the West can do. They could even say, we're just going to sell it to you at spot. Spot price, yes. no long-term yes. deal, or you know, we'll do a five-year deal, and you'll get only ten percent off. You know, this sort of thing. Meanwhile, oh, we'll do man. our massive deals with the global south, and they're going to get because it seems to me the playbook, and it seems to me this is kind of what you're alluding to, is we're going to have our separate group over here, and they're going to get their commodities for much cheaper, and that if the West wants in, fine, but you're going to be paying top dollar. Yeah, exactly. And the fact is, they'll go. But here's the problem. It's trust. You know, we could sign a five-year deal with us, but in six months, you know, you'll you'll be sanctioning us again. So we can't work on that basis. So, you know, so if you disband NATO in Europe and we sign these deals in, in, and they're stretching it away, and, you know, so it's a choice. Do you want to have a military cooperation with the United States or do you want to have cheap energy? Uh, because the alternative is you're going to end up blowing your economy to pieces, your financial system. And, and if you've got, you know, like in Germany, what is it, 80 odd million Germans who uh, can't feed themselves and can't heat their homes, then you might have a bit of a problem. So, 
You might want to sharpen your focus a bit and understand what matters. When people ask me, how is the economy going in Germany for being based here in Berlin? I mean, there's a couple of things. First, I'd say it's indirect what's happening in the plants not being built. But I, then I say, you know, actually, it's in the political polling that you really see what's going on in Germany. In a sense, you don't notice it on the day to day. But again, it's in these indirect ways that you're starting to see the impacts on the economy. As I like to say, you were into multipolarity before it was cool. And you've been talking <laughs> about that for years and now, I mean, that, that was like a new term practically for me. And now it's everywhere. So, Paul from the Serious Report, thank you once again for joining us and sharing your insights and perspective on the world on the Northern Miner podcast. Yes, and thank you. Much appreciated as ever. And a very big thank you to Paul from The Serious Report for sharing his views on gold, silver, and oil. And if you want to meet people in person, go check out events.northernminer.com. You can learn all about the Canadian Mining Symposium in London on October 12th and 13th. We also have an article on the homepage of the Northern Miner website. Do check it out. Thank you once again for joining us. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.